Well, I did want to take an opportunity to share some things with you that have been significant. Uh, <laughs> hadn't even gotten started yet. <laughs> Over the last few weeks, what I've tried to do, as I do each year, is just spend some time uh, in the Scripture looking at the events of the last week of Christ's life. Uh, because I never want to take for granted the significance of what we celebrate on a morning like this. And so I want to just kind of share with you some of the things that, that I've learned through that process because I believe there was something new for me this year that I haven't appreciated in the past. I haven't really appreciated the influence that the crowds had on the events that took place during that last week of Christ's life. Now, I know you and I understand from our own experience what it means to get lost in the crowd, kind of caught up in the emotion of the moment, but I didn't really realize how significant that was for the events that took place during the last week of Christ's life. So I want us to walk through that together, and if we could, let's begin with the crowd that had gathered the day that Jesus walked into Jerusalem at the beginning of that last week of his life. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 21, and let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 6. It says, And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments, on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him, and those followed him, saying out loud, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus the Nazareth, from Nazareth in Galilee. Everybody's familiar with this scene, right? This crowd is gathered. It's what's called the triumphal entry because that's literally what it was. It was tradition in this culture. When a warrior came in victorious from battle, they would do exactly what they did for Jesus. They would lay down their coats. They would put down palm branches as a sign of honor and respect for his victory. Well, this is the way they are honoring and respecting Jesus as he enters the, the city, and the words they speak give evidence of what they think about who he is. They say, blessed is the, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise him to the highest place. Now, one of the things that we need to understand as we hear these familiar words that, is that this is no small gesture for this crowd that is gathered as Jesus enters the city. In fact, it's bordering on treason. You see, Caesar was the ruling party within that culture. And what these people were saying is that we want Jesus as our king. Not Caesar, we want Jesus as our king. Because apparently they believed Jesus could accomplish things that either Caesar was unwilling or unable to do himself. They knew that, that Jesus had promised. That he had come to set them free and that's exactly what they wanted this is the moment that they had been waiting for but the religious leaders knew how delicate this situation was the crowd was causing a scene and there was a very delicate balance of their ability to live as jews within that time of roman rule this wasn't going to be good if things didn't get under control 
So they called on Jesus to, to hush the crowd. He said, tell them that what they're saying is not true. For we all know you're from Galilee. <laughs> you're the son of a carpenter. You're not a king. And if there's anybody who knows how to lead these people, it's us. The religious leaders. So tell them that this is not true. Jesus was unwilling to comply and simply remained silent as he went into the city. And as he entered the temple, he kind of adds fuel to the fire. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus sees these greedy merchants who are charging way too much for the items that they're selling. They shouldn't have been selling them anyway because the whole idea is that you bring the best of what you have. That's not what was happening here. They'd been given permission to be there by the religious leaders who probably were gaining something from that permission. And in anger, Jesus looked at this and he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he overturned the tables and he cast them out of the temple. Finally, <laughs> Somebody who's willing to stand up for the common people, right? Isn't that what this is all about? No, it's not. Because that's not what Jesus was doing. He was not defending the disenfranchised. He was condemning religious corruption. He said, this is a house of prayer. But you've made it into a robber's den. The people were guilty of robbing God. Of the worship he alone deserved. The leadership was corrupt. The devotion of the people was defiled. Both groups were seeking God on their terms for what he might do for them, not what they might offer him in worship. They were going through the motions. I think we can safely say they were lost in the crowd. Here's what's interesting about something that's happening within this crowd. And I want us to look at John chapter 12 to get a little insight into a dynamic that we don't see in Matthew. Turn to John chapter 12 and look at a couple of verses with me there. So within this crowd, John describes a, a group of people that exist. And he says in chapter 12, verse 42, he says this, Nevertheless... Many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now listen, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You hear what they're saying here? Within that crowd, apparently there were those who believed, but were unwilling to confess out of fear of what others would say. They wanted the approval of people. They wanted to avoid persecution, to have some ill effect from their beliefs. Even if they had to deny what they knew was true to gain the approval of those around them. That's what it looks like. To seek the approval of men is more important than worship to God. That's the power 
of a crowd. It has the power to cause you to deny things that you know are absolutely true. But it also can lead you to believe things that are absolutely false. You see, the people in the crowd that day wanted to crown Jesus as king because they were looking for social reform. They were looking for someone who had the power to make their life better. So when Jesus said, I've come to set you free, they interpret it through the lens of their own expectations. Oh, so what he means is free from Roman rule, free to be a people that were on top, who are not the ones being oppressed. What he means is free to have a better life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what's interesting is that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to change the world. He came to change hearts. But the crowd heard only what they wanted to hear, even if that's not what Jesus said. Whether denying what is true or accepting what is false, the core issue is the same. My decisions are determined by what other people think. That's the power of a crowd. I'm more interested in winning the approval of others than giving glory and honor and worship to God. In a sense, it's really self-preservation, right? And it's inconsistent with a life of faith because Jesus made it clear. He says, he who wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who is willing to sacrifice it all, to, to lose his life for my sake, will save it. Salvation is an act of surrender. And hear me clearly. Until you're willing to give up everything, you will go along with anything. Did you hear what I said? It's the power of a crowd. Until you're willing to give up everything, you will go along with anything. I want you to watch what happens to this crowd who is ready to crown Jesus as king. Go back to Matthew and let's look at chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is happening a little later in the week, but as the, Jesus makes his way back to Bethany, there's something sinister that begins to happen behind the scenes. And I want you to peek behind the curtain to see what that looks like. So in chapter 26, verse 3, it says this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now go over to verse 47. And, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. The religious leaders who feared the crowd decide to work under the cover of darkness. They rallied an opposition group together and hired G Judas to, to lead them to Jesus. 
They showed up in the middle of the night armed with, with clubs and swords. They're strength in numbers, right? That's the power of the crowd. But I do wonder, based on what we read in John, if there were those who were there that night who actually held those clubs and those swords who believed but were unwilling to confess, unwilling to take a stand. Regardless, collectively, they made a decision to, to take Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest who was anxiously awaiting. He had gathered a group of men who he knew would stand with him as he stood against Jesus. The problem is, is when they went to this sham of a trial to present the evidence, no two people could agree to the same story. So Caiaphas finally gets frustrated and he said, Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Jesus honors the request and says clearly, yes, I am. But Caiaphas never had to ask that question because Jesus had made that clear throughout his life in ministry. He had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Because I and the Father are one. Jesus claims to be Messiah. To be God incarnate was not a hidden truth. Instead, it was simply a truth the religious leaders were unwilling to accept. So instead of rejoicing in the news, they condemned him for blasphemy. They understood very clearly what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God. They couldn't accept that as truth. So they sent him to Pontius Pilate, uh, suggesting that he was guilty of treason, that he would formed a group to, to revolt against Caesar. Now, what's interesting is that never came up in the trial. They had condemned him for blasphemy, right? But that would hold no water with Roman rule. Who cares? They worshiped a pantheon of gods. What's one more? So they had to change it in order to get the conviction that they needed for the punishment that they wanted. Crucifixion. Death. And so they took him to Pilate. Pilate didn't really understand what was so significant. He heard nothing of a revolt going on. He knew that Jesus was causing a scene, but he knew that he had not done anything to, to cause a revolt. And so he asked him plainly, Jesus, are you leading a rebellion? Jesus says very clearly, I'm not here to lead a revolt. I, I don't have an army to establish my reign. I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Pilate might have thought Jesus was crazy for what he had just said, but he knew that he wasn't guilty of high treason. So in an effort to appease the accusers, he chose to beat and humiliate Jesus to the point where he was hardly even recognizable. They whipped him to the point that his flesh was cut into shreds. They, they put a robe around him, mocking him as a king, and very quickly that robe would have filled with blood. They put a crown of thorns on his head, presented him to his accusers, and then said, here, take your so-called king. Now, what's important to understand is that while all this was taking place within the governor's palace, the religious leaders had been circulating throughout the city. They were heralding the news. A jury had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. 
He had been proven to be a fraud, and the people had been played the fool. The religious leaders have once again saved the day. The miracle worker has been rendered powerless. Come and see for yourselves. Come and see for yourselves. And so the disillusioned crowd began to gather outside of the governor's palace. So that when Pilate presents Jesus to the people and he says to them, Hail, here is your king. The humiliation of Jesus became the humiliation of that crowd. The same ones who had honored him as a victorious warrior were now witnessing his defeat. And if he couldn't stand up against Rome, how could he possibly be their king? Well, their plan had worked. The opinion of the crowd has begun to change. First it was one voice, and then ten. And then eventually the whole crowd crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! This is not our king! Do you see the power of the crowd? These are the very same people who not days before were ready to crown Jesus as their king. And now they are calling for his crucifixion. It's the power of a crowd. Even those who believed remained silent within that crowd. How does it happen? I think it happens when we get lost in the crowd. You end up denying things that are true or believing things that are false. Your decisions are made based on what other people think. And until you're willing to give up everything, you will go along with anything. So let me show you some examples of some people who were unwilling to go along, who stood up for what they believed. Turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We'll look at verse 37. Mark chapter 15, verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. A centurion is a commander of a hundred men. It's a very powerful officer in the Roman military, very likely the man who was given the responsibility to carry out the execution of Jesus. He stood before Jesus, and when he took his last breath, it says he believed. He, he confessed out loud, surely this was the Son of God, based on what he had witnessed that day. As a Roman soldier, you have to believe he had seen a lot of men die, right? Many of which probably by the tip of his own sword. He knew what that was like. In verse 37, when it says, a loud cry, the, the original language is phone megale, from which we get our English word, megaphone. You see, what the soldier heard that day was not a whimper in defeat. It was a victory cry. Jesus 
met death and triumph. And when that soldier saw the evidence of that truth, he believed. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. And he no longer was going along with the crowd. At great risk to his own life, he stood for what he believed. Let me give you another example. Turn over to verse 42. And when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, the religious leaders, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You see, Joseph may have been one of those members of the religious group who was holding a club or a sword that day they arrested Jesus. He may have been silent the day they called for his crucifixion. He may have been one who believed, but held back out of fear of what other people would think and the consequences it would cause in his own personal life, but not anymore. Verse 37 or 43 says, he gathered up the courage. He risked everything to stand up for what he believed. And in John's gospel, we learn that the example of Joseph of Arimathea led another religious leader by the name of Nicodemus to come forward along with him. So together, they stood up for what they believed, knowing at what great risk it was to take such a bold step of faith. And one by one, more and more people followed their example and stood up for what they believed. They came to a place of surrender through faith in Jesus Christ. And when they saw the risen Lord, their faith became sight. All the promises of God fulfilled in his victory over death. The resurrection was literally living proof that what Jesus said was true. Ultimately, the resurrection is why we believe. It's the ground that we stand on. The resurrection gives us purpose in life. It gives us a message to proclaim. That's why we can have confidence that there is no guilt in this life. The scripture says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence knowing that we will find grace and forgiveness in our time of need. We have the privilege of living life this side of heaven with the assurance that we are eternally and securely His, which gives us the ability to not only live this life without guilt, but to face death without fear, to know that, that death has been swallowed up in victory. And if Jesus, if we believe in him and have been buried with him in that sin-conquering death, then we will rise again in that life-saving resurrection. That's the truth we stand on. That's what we believe. The resurrection changes everything. And if that's what you believe, stand boldly in your faith. Don't get lost in the crowd and, and end up denying things you know are true. Or believing the popular choice, which leads you down a path of destruction. Stand up for what you believe to be true. That's what you've been seeing this morning. 
That's what baptism is all about. It's standing up for what you believe to be true and confessing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, having victory over death so that we might live eternally with him. That's the promise. And that's what baptism represents. Buried with him in baptism. Raised to live a new life in Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's important that we understand that in our world today, choosing to follow Jesus is increasingly an unpopular choice. I know that's hard for us to understand in the Bible Belt of America, but I think it's very possible that in our lifetime, we'll see those who are willing to stand up for Jesus Christ to be some of the most persecuted and hated people in this world. So are you willing to stand up for what you believe? even though you may be ridiculed or persecuted for that choice. There were people here this morning and those yet to come who are making a public profession of faith to you knowing that when they return home to new places and new cultures that they will be persecuted and ridiculed for that decision. But because they believe it's true, they are willing to stand up for what they believe. And here's what they need. They need a Nicodemus. They need a Joseph of Arimathea. They need people who are willing to stand with them to say, look, you don't stand alone. We stand together because this is what we believe as the people of God. We will stand together with one mind and one spirit for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a message to proclaim. You have a purpose in life and has been made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stand for what you believe. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. That last wave of people being baptized, if you will make your way. And then uh, Jason has got a few things to share with us. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for the promise fulfilled. The promise that you will, in fact, set us free. Free from sin. The power of Satan to control our lives. Instead, to live in the hope of the resurrected Christ. New creations, old things gone, new things come. That we can live with purpose and conviction in this life, this side of heaven, knowing that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be resurrected to live eternally with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we stand together with now. May we be that people who worship you because that's what you deserve. The praise and glory of your name. Amen.